It's Valentine's Day. And you know who my Valentine is? It's you. That's right. You, specifically. Not anyone else. You. I choo-choo-choose you. You choo-choo-choose me? Because I love my audience. Even the ones who send me volatile shit online that will get me on many watch lists. Especially the ones who send me volatile shit online that gets me on a lot of watch lists. So here's a Valentine's gift for everyone. You hear me pushing the subscription model, because that's the world we live in. We lost the Cold War. The Cold War's over. Well, finally those capitalist pigs will pay for their crimes, eh? Hey, comrades, hey? Austin, we won. Oh, groovy, smashing, yay capitalism. <laughs> and I keep mentioning bonus shows. If you already dove into those murky waters, then I love you more than the base crowd, but I do love everyone. But maybe you're a cautious cat. Maybe you want to try before you buy. I get it. Chance favors the prepared mind. So here's what I'm going to do. For this Valentine's Day only, like there's a time limit on putting out a podcast, but let's pretend that there is. For this Valentine's Day only, I'm going to be releasing one of those bonus shows out into the wild for everyone to enjoy. Subscribers have been sitting on this exclusively for nearly two years now. It's time to send this thing out into syndication, Seinfeld style. And that is certainly one way of looking at my motivations. Another, much more accurate way of looking at it is this. I was going through the back catalogue trying to find a certain clip, and I listened back to this show and I realised I was in the goddamn zone with this thing. I nailed it, if I do say so myself. So, in my desperate and eternal search for validation, I'm throwing this bad boy out into the wild. I'm running it up the flagpole, feel free to salute. This is the kind of thing you get if you throw some coins at me once a month. Try it. See if you like it. Here is the wild and woolly tale of Stuxnet. And if you haven't heard of Stuxnet, holy shit, you're in for a wild ride. Oh, and by the way, if you have not yet seen the seminal movie Hackers, now is your chance to hit pause and go and watch Hackers, because this show is going to make a whole lot more sense if you've seen Hackers. So here we go. Pause. Hackers. All right. We're all back. Everyone's watched Hackers. How good is Matthew Lillard? Seriously, that dude has range. Alright, we're all on the same page. Without further ado, let's find out more about Stuxnet. History never repeats, but it does often rhyme. Vibe to the beat of History Go Time. This is a story about the first ever computer virus to cause actual physical damage in the real world. So grab your fingerless gloves, crank up Prodigy's music for the jilted generation, and get Johnny Lee Miller on the message board, because we're about to hack the planet. Never fear. I is here. I've narrowed the activity to Terminal 23. Let's echo 23, see what's up. This is the story of a little virus called Stuxnet. Alright, listen up. Use your best viruses to buy us some time. We have to get into Plague's file and copy the worm. 
In June of 2010, a computer virus was discovered in computers of all types all over the world. It wasn't on every computer, but it was pretty much everywhere. It didn't really matter where you were in the world. You were within spitting distance of a machine that was infected with this computer virus. It's as close as a computer virus has ever come to an actual virus. It was a pandemic. It had jumped borders. It was everywhere. And upon discovering this virus, it scared the ever-loving shit out of the people who discovered it. A Belarusian computer security firm called VirusBlock ADA. These computer security experts had gone into work that morning and thought it was just going to be yet another day at the office. And all of a sudden, they'd stumbled onto not only a computer virus, but the most complex computer virus that they'd ever seen, by a considerable margin. This particular virus had at least 20 times the complexity of anything else on record. And that was just a guess, because this security team had to invent new metrics on virus complexity to try and categorize the thing that they just found. And not only did they stumble onto the most complex computer virus ever conceived by man, it was already out there in the wild. It was everywhere. They couldn't stop it because it was already loose. The good folks at VirusBlock ADA quickly decided that this was way above their pay grade, and they sent it up the food chain, and I mean, who can blame them? That's exactly what I would have done in that situation. The virus was sampled and sent to computer security experts at Kaspersky, the world's leading computer security company. And the engineers there at Kaspersky began dissecting the code on this computer virus and reverse engineering it and unraveling the frankly astonishing levels of complexity. And the more that they uncovered of this virus, the more frightened they became. The team at Kaspersky, the world standard in computer security, they decoded this virus and then they sat on the discovery for nearly a week. They didn't do anything about it. They tried to pretend that it didn't exist. Because they didn't know what else to do. Because the more that they looked at it, the more complex it became. And the more they realized that this thing they were studying was way beyond the capabilities of any lone gunman working from their parents' basement. It was way beyond even the corporate sector. This virus was so advanced that it had to have been the work of an entire team of world-class hackers with almost unlimited resources. And if you had the resources to make a virus like this, then you also had the resources to make someone disappear. I know my rights. I want my phone call. And tell me, Mr. Anderson, what good is a phone call if you're unable to speak? Kaspersky couldn't tell much about the virus, even with the time they'd spent looking at the code, but one thing was abundantly clear. While nobody had signed their work on this virus, so to speak, it became pretty obvious pretty quickly that this virus was designed either by the Mossad, the CIA, or even scarier, both. It was an extraterritorial, extrajudicial weapon. It is, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the most sophisticated piece of software ever designed. And because this particular piece of software had two major files in it, which were called .stub 
and mrxnet.sys, this virus was dubbed Stuxnet. Stuxnet is so advanced that I can't really tell you what it does, at least not in any detail. I can't tell you the specifics on it because it's way above my pay grade. Which doesn't really matter to the story, which is fortunate, and it's great how things work out like that. Bear in mind that we're only going to do a surface level on the actual mechanics of this thing. Fortunately, that's all we need. Here we go, the wild story of Stuxnet. We don't know who wrote the virus. We can only guess. We don't know when it was written or when it was released. Again, we can only guess. It was discovered in 2010, but it could have been anywhere between 2005 and 2010, which doesn't really narrow it down. The best half a decade isn't exactly precise in an industry that's used to dealing with seconds. And by the time this virus was detected, it was already everywhere. It was already at pandemic levels. The first time anyone in history encounters Stuxnet is on an anonymous USB drive. And good policy is to never go sticking foreign USB drives in your computer if you're not sure where they've been. It's just a good rule of thumb. If you don't know where something has been, don't go inserting it into places where it can cause viruses. That isn't just a computer thing, that's just a good life lesson. But the thing with Stuxnet is that you don't even know that it's there. It's invisible. Unless you're specifically looking for it and you know exactly what to look for, you will never, ever find it. This thing is Jerry O'Connell's acting career post-sliders. It is completely invisible. But then one day, somebody, somewhere, broke the golden rule. They found a USB stick somewhere, just lying around somewhere on the street, or sitting on a table in a coffee shop, or it got mailed to them, and then they just stuck it in their computer to see what was on it. And now that anonymous person, with that anonymous USB stick, is patient zero for the most advanced computer virus ever written. Here's how Stuxnet works. As soon as the USB is placed into a live computer, it runs itself. You don't need to trigger anything, you don't need to click on anything, you don't need to run anything. It's like a bed bug, it's triggered by movement. Just the action of plugging the USB drive into a computer is enough to activate Stuxnet. It now copies itself onto the computer. It goes from the USB drive to the computer. Again, no user interface required. Stuxnet had not one, not two, but three methods of covertly installing itself onto a new host computer. Methods that in no way alerted any form of antivirus software that gave no indication it was installing, again, completely invisible. Two of these methods were completely novel. They were invented by the people who wrote Stuxnet. One of them was merely something that people didn't even think to check yet. What Stuxnet did was it took advantage of a secret bug in the Windows code that nobody, not even Microsoft, were aware even existed. Nobody in the tech world even knew of the bugs that Stuxnet was exploiting until they saw Stuxnet exploiting them. Once Stuxnet was inside a computer, it immediately made itself the administrator of that computer. It had full access. It can't be stopped, it can't even be detected, because antivirus software not only didn't know how to look for this virus, 
antivirus software didn't know the places the virus likes to hang out even existed. Not only is it not looking for the virus, it doesn't know where to look. So Stuxnet just marches into your computer, makes itself the administrator, and now it is the boss of that computer and nobody knows any different. Then, Stuxnet installs a new operating system on that computer that runs underneath Windows. It will now never be detected by any sort of scan or antivirus or anything like that because it's not even running on that operating system. It's made its own little house that scans can't detect because, again, for effect, they haven't even thought to look there because it's never happened before. This is kind of like if your house gets burgled and you don't know how the burglars got in because all of the doors and windows were locked, you don't think to check to see if someone has built an exact duplicate of your house and put it on top of your old house in a way that you didn't even notice. Stuxnet hid so well that it was out in the world on nearly everyone's computer in the world without anyone knowing. That is anyone in the world. Tech experts, antivirus makers, world governments. Nobody knew about this thing for nearly a year, possibly even as long as five years. That's how long it was out in the wild. And once it's safely embedded on your computer, Stuxnet goes to work. First off, it phones home. I pity the fool who doesn't phone home. Stuxnet checks to see if the computer it's just invaded is connected to the internet. If Stuxnet can't find the internet, it just goes back to sleep until it gets a connection. It's kind of like a teenager. But if it can get online, it's party time. Stuxnet opens its own covert internet connection, no browser required, this is a direct line, and it opens up one of two websites. These are www.mypremierfootball.com or www.todaysfootball.com, in case one of them doesn't work. Don't bother checking those sites out, there's nothing there. They're dummy sites that kind of look like something that might actually exist, something that wouldn't be too suspicious if you happen to accidentally stumble upon it, but these aren't real websites. They just look close enough like real websites that they won't arouse suspicion. You wouldn't want your virus going to a website that was bustyhugegazongas.com or something. Football, though, everyone can get on board with that. The servers for these websites were based in Malaysia and Denmark. Again, no red flags if you found your internet looking in that direction. Malaysia and Denmark aren't suspicious. It's not like a site operating in Kazakhstan or Ukraine or something, something to set off red flags. Once Stuxnet gets onto these sites, it automatically updates itself to the latest version. Because Stuxnet is better written than most video game clients, and certainly better written than the Sony PlayStation 4. Stuxnet updates itself, and now that it's operating at the latest version, the true wizardry of this virus starts to come into play. Stuxnet, like any good virus, wants to make copies of itself. So it configures itself to upload itself onto any and all USBs that you stick into that computer from now on. Whatever you plug into your computer will now have a brand new version of Stuxnet ready to plug and play. Stuxnet makes itself into a disk driver. And like I say, this is where the wizardry comes in. This is about the point where people looking at Stuxnet and trying to decode the virus they'd just found 
they start to think that maybe they should shut the fuck up if they don't want to commit suicide by falling onto some bullets, because this thing is scary. Normally, when a program tries to install itself, it has to provide some credentials to do that. It's exactly the same process as getting ID'd at a bar. Computer security is actually pretty good. And since this thing is saying, Hi, I'm a disk driver, I'd like to install a whole bunch of stuff on your computer. Since this is the easiest way of propagating a computer virus, that whole operation is locked up like Fort Knox. Very hard to actually copy stuff. So when a virus tries to say, Hi, I'm a disk driver, your computer will say, Yeah, sure you are, buddy, and I'm the Prince of Wales. I'm going to need to see some ID. And then the virus will show a fake ID, and either the antivirus software is good enough to spot that it's a fake ID and stop it, or they don't spot the fake ID and they let it install a whole bunch of shit. Depends on the quality of your antivirus. Computer security is a constant game of cat and mouse between making fakes and making programs good enough to spot fakes. That's the dance that's gone on since time immemorial. But the sheer genius of Stuxnet is that it didn't use a fake ID. It had real credentials. It wasn't posing as a fake disk driver. It had the actual real credentials of an honest-to-God legitimate disk driver, certified by one of the world's leading disk companies. Stuxnet's drivers were designed by Realtek. Realtek is one of the world's leading technology companies. Whatever you're listening to this show on right now has a significant portion of Realtek parts in it. They make most of the computer stuff in the world. Realtek's factories are based in Taiwan, and they have better security than most countries. They are a multi, multi-billion dollar company, and their security is their stock in trade. They take it very seriously. They got cameras, they got watches, they got locks, they got timers, they got vaults. They got enough armed personnel to occupy Paris. Okay, bad example. Stuxnet wasn't just imitating Realtek credentials. Whoever managed to make this virus managed to steal Realtek's actual credentials, the most top-secret security keys that they have. They infiltrated the building and made it out with the most valuable thing in it, without anyone at Realtek noticing. For years. It gets even crazier. The Realtek certification actually had two different keys on it, just in case someone were able to break into one of the most heavily guarded corporate facilities on Earth and steal those credentials. There was another key necessary, like the nuclear launch keys. The second part of the key was held by a different company called J-Micron, who are almost as big as Realtek, and the two keys that they had had to work in tandem to legitimize themselves as a driver certification. The people who wrote the Stuxnet virus also managed to break into J-Micron and steal those keys too. They Ocean's Elevened two of the biggest tech companies in the world at the same time without anyone noticing. And it didn't stop there. Just in case you're not across the nitty-gritty of computers, there's a concept known as zero-day. You might hear in the news things like zero-day vulnerabilities or zero-day exploits. To put it simply, whenever you release a new bit of software or hardware, 
that point of initial release is the time when it's the most vulnerable. Before you put it out into the world, you have only your people inside your organization to test that program or component and check it for vulnerabilities that a hacker can attack. Most tech companies actually hire hackers to hack their own software to try and find these vulnerabilities before they go out in the open. It's called penetration testing. These hackers are known as white hats, while actual criminal hackers are known as black hats. It's very dramatic. So the first moment you put your new product out into the wild, it's in this very vulnerable, altricial stage. Everybody is going to try and attack it, and there's just no way that you've thought of every possible attack. Eventually, enough people will attack it, and enough of your own white hats will defend it, that you'll be able to plug all of the holes. But for a while there, a hacker can do some real damage. And this is known as zero day. As in, you have zero days left to fix things before it all goes to shit. For big companies like Microsoft and Apple, this period, this zero day, is usually minutes or hours, while teams of thousands of programmers plug all of the holes. But for smaller companies, it could be days or even weeks. Zero day is the best chance you have to hack something. So companies do everything they can to hide when zero day is going to be, when they release their product to minimize this vulnerability. Zero days are so secret that hackers will actually pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for information regarding when there's going to be a zero day because it is such candy land for hacking. For instance, if you were, I don't know, Realtek or Jmicron putting out your brand new security keys, that might be a saucy zero day to attack. The Stuxnet virus was so complex that it took advantage of 20 different zero-day attacks. And bear in mind what I just said, one zero-day is Candyland. It had at least 20. So you've got yourself a bad case of Stuxnet on your computer. But Stuxnet isn't just in your computer, it's sending itself to every computer your computer ever contacts. And it's doing so in a way that no antivirus will ever stop because it has authentic credentials. It has the police officer's badge. Now Stuxnet takes advantage of two different bugs in the Windows operating system. Nobody knew about these bugs until Stuxnet was finally discovered. They'd existed in Windows for years because nobody had ever thought it was even possible to make the Windows code work this way and the bugs were discovered when they found Stuxnet making the code work that way. Stuxnet spreads itself by using the instructions for operating a printer. When Stuxnet is first installed on any computer, it looks for a very specific device driver in Windows. It looks for a very tiny bit of code that's made by the tech giant company Siemens, and this code is used solely and for the sole purpose of operating large industrial printers. These aren't your household inkjet printers. These are those huge things that churn out newspapers. And the code for operating these things is on your computer on the off chance that maybe one day you might just possibly need to run one of these massive printers. And since it's only a couple of lines of code that nobody will ever see and it doesn't really take up any space, nobody even thought to secure it. Because why would you even look? 
It's like if your car had a small switch underneath the steering wheel that you'd have to remove the steering wheel to even see, and if you flip this switch, it let you jumpstart a space shuttle. It's very useful in the one in a trillion situation that you might need to jumpstart a space shuttle, but you're not going to redesign the entire car to get rid of it because nobody is ever going to see it, and even if they did, they're not actually going to use it to jumpstart a space shuttle, so why go to all the effort? And the equivalent of that is what Stuxnet burrows into. So now Stuxnet has attached itself to this very, very specific bit of code. And nobody is ever going to find it because nobody is even going to think to look because there is no reason in a million years to imagine looking at these drivers. And now that it's in there, burrowed in nice and deep where no one's ever going to find it, Stuxnet goes to sleep. It does nothing. It does absolutely nothing. It doesn't try and hijack your web browser. It doesn't download your files. It doesn't try and get your bank details. It does nothing. It just sits there. And very occasionally, it will check to see if the computer that it's burrowed into is plugged into something. And not just something. A very specific something. Very occasionally, maybe even once a week, Stuxnet will check to see if the computer it's on is connected to an industrial motor from one of two specific companies. One of these companies is from Finland, and the other is from Iran. These two companies make a product that is known as a variable frequency drive. Variable frequency drives are very expensive and very rare technology. You can't just pick one up at the good guys at the end of financial year's sale. These are custom motors that are the size of a truck that do one very specific thing. Variable frequency drives run industrial centrifuges. Industrial centrifuges can do a few things, but they're usually used for purifying large amounts of chemicals. Chemicals like uranium. You've probably heard the term enriched uranium a fair bit, but what does it mean? It's entirely reasonable to not know exactly what enriched uranium means. Most people don't make the time in their lives to learn about uranium enrichment. That's what you have me for. I put myself on an ASIO watch list so you don't have to. It's what I do for you guys. So what exactly is enriched uranium? So a quick recap on high school science here regarding nuclear fission. You guys already know this, but this is a quick primer for you, just in case you forgot. This is obviously a gross oversimplification, but this is history go time, not nuclear physics go time. That's an entirely different Patreon. Atoms have little bits floating around them called neutrons. The more neutrons, the denser the atom. So radioactive materials like uranium have a whole bunch of these little neutron guys flying around. When an atom is split, these neutrons will launch off like Gary Busey on a motorcycle. And when they fly off, they have a chance of striking another atom. And when they do, they might break that atom apart, which sends off more neutrons, which will break apart more atoms. This causes a chain reaction of atoms breaking apart. We call this critical mass. 
Critical mass is the point where enough atoms are blowing up that it becomes a self-sustaining reaction. Now remember our boy Einstein with his energy mass equivalence rule, E equals MC hammer? These atoms, which are mass, are turning into energy, which we're multiplying by the speed of light squared, which is a lot. This whole process causes a really big boom when it happens all at once, which is an atomic bomb, or you can make it go slowly and get a long-term little boom, which is nuclear power. To do this, you want a really heavy atom. And uranium is a really heavy atom. But even then, it's actually quite tricky to get that critical mass happening and a chain reaction large enough to create a miniature sun. Actually very, very hard to do. The Fat Man bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima, that had 64 kilograms of enriched uranium in it, and less than a kilogram of that actually blew up. And it still made that bigger boom. This is some potent shit. So to make the big boom boom, you want a particularly dense form of uranium, which is known as uranium-235. If you want to make a miniature star and wipe a city off a map, this is the disco shit. This is what you want, uranium-235. The thing is, and this is a large reason why we haven't been wiped out in nuclear hellfire by now, uranium-235 is exceedingly rare. Of all of the uranium in all of the world, only about 0.7% of it is uranium-235. The rest of it is the much less fissile uranium-238. It's the same thing, just less explodey. So, if you want to make the big boomy boom... Jesus Christ, did the boomy booms blow up all your wordy word books? You need to turn uranium-238, which is common into uranium-235, which is not. And technically speaking, uranium-238 is fissile, but anything is fissile if you hit it hard enough. And I already promised not to go too heavy into the science here. So let's just say that we need uranium-235 to make nuclear happen. So in order to get U-235 enriched uranium, you need to, well, enrich it. This means melting your uranium down into a gas known as uranium hexafluoride and then piping that into a centrifuge. The centrifuge then spins around really, really fast. And as it does, the heavier uranium-235 atoms get pushed out, leaving you with some lovely enriched uranium that you can use to hold the world to ransom. And again, massive oversimplification, but you get the idea. And if you use thousands of these centrifuges and a lot of U-238, and it takes a lot of time and effort, but in the end, you get a sizable amount of uranium-235 that you can use to blow up Italy or France. <laughs> Nobody ever says Italy. And it was absolutely essential that you know that enriched uranium is made in centrifuges because it's about to become super important. So back to Stuxnet. Stuxnet is sitting in your computer, dormant attached to some eldritch printer drivers that you've never heard of, waiting to see if that computer attaches itself to some industrial-sized centrifuges. And tampering with these centrifuges, centrifuges which are used to enrich weapons-grade uranium, is the sole purpose of Stuxnet. It's the only thing it does. When it detects these centrifuges, Stuxnet jumps into action. It transfers itself 
into the control panels of the centrifuges and takes complete control over them. It is now the Puppet Master. Stuxnet now controls everything these centrifuges do. They are totally owned by the virus. And here's where Stuxnet goes from wizardry to pure artistry. Because Stuxnet can now destroy these centrifuges. It can just straight up blow them up. It can set the centrifuges to keep spinning faster and faster and then remove all of the safety regulators that would usually stop them from spinning so fast and spin them so much that they just shatter under the pressure and just explode, killing anyone that happens to be standing nearby. It can do that. But Stuxnet isn't a blunt instrument. It isn't a thug. It's a surgeon. Once it gains total control of these systems, again, it does nothing. Nothing at all. It just sits there, dormant, for days, weeks maybe, until it decides that the time is right. When it has determined that the centrifuges that it's plugged into happen to be purifying uranium. At that point, Stuxnet will pick a few of those centrifuges that are trying to enrich uranium. But not all of them. Just a few. At random. And then, it makes them spin just a little bit off. Not much. Just a smidge. Just a few percentage points outside the baseline. Just a little bit too fast or a little bit too slow. And while it's doing this, it also starts to increase the gas pressure inside the centrifuges. Remember, these things are filled with gaseous uranium. Uranium hexafluoride, or UF6. This is some seriously nasty shit, as you can probably imagine. Enriching uranium requires spinning this UF6 gas at just the right speed, or everything gets really bad really quickly. If you spin it too slowly, then you don't have any enriched uranium, you just happen to have one of the world's most lethal gases. Spin it too fast, and everything basically condenses down into a rock. Rock that has an amazing amount of centrifugal energy behind it, just spinning away, waiting to explode. These centrifuges are a split hair away from becoming cluster bombs. And now comes the truly sublime bit the most spectacular part of the Stuxnet code that just, oh, it's gorgeous. Stuxnet has taken complete control of all of the enrichment centrifuges. It has randomly selected a portion of them to become live weapons. It has locked out any external mechanisms for turning them off. Nobody outside can interfere now. And now... Instead of showing live diagnostics of what is happening inside the centrifuges, of the sabotage that it's conducting, Stuxnet is showing a lie. The first thing that Stuxnet does when it burrows into a centrifuge system, and I deliberately didn't tell you about this for dramatic effect, the first thing it does is it records 21 seconds of the system functioning perfectly normally. And then, when it begins to sabotage the system, it changes the diagnostic screens to show a continuous loop of that 21 seconds of everything looking just fine. First, 
I hook this common VCR into the security camera system like so. Then I insert this old videotape of us working on a continuous loop. If you think that sounds a lot like the plot of the movie Speed, that's because it is. I saw this in a movie about a bus that had to speed around the city, keeping its speed over 50. And if its speed dropped, it would explode. I think it was called the bus that couldn't slow down. So imagine you're a nuclear technician in a rogue nation. It's your job to create the enriched uranium necessary for weapons of mass destruction in a huge industrial facility built to purpose. And things start to go wrong. Not a lot wrong. Things are just a little bit off. You can't even tell exactly what's going wrong. You just know that something is going wrong. Things are a little bit hotter than normal, maybe. But maybe it's just a hot day. Maybe the motors sound a little bit different. The centrifuges are whining at slightly higher pitch. So you check the diagnostics and everything is fine. All of the readings are exactly what they should be. Everything is in the green. And then the centrifuges start breaking. Randomly. One after the other. There's no pattern, there's no design, there's no plan. They just randomly start going to shit. Sometimes they just shut down. Sometimes they slow to a crawl. Sometimes they speed up too much. And sometimes they just straight up explode and God helps anyone standing next to them when they do. And all of that uranium-238 that you were hoping to turn into precious enriched uranium-235? Well now all of it is uranium-230 shit. Uranium needs to be pure in order to be useful and now all of yours is junk. You must be sure that your girl is pure for the funky cold Medina. So what do you do? You turn everything off and on again and things look fine, but then things always looked fine. But you do it anyway, and the centrifuges keep breaking. You disconnect all of the computers. The centrifuges keep breaking. You wipe all of the software and start again, and the centrifuges keep breaking. You disconnect everything from the internet. The centrifuges keep breaking. At what point would you begin to suspect that all of this was being caused by a computer virus? A virus that somehow got inside your nuclear centrifuges. Machines that don't have an operating system. Machines that don't connect to the internet. Machines that don't even have a floppy disk drive on them. Because if anyone tells you they'd reach that conclusion on their own, they're lying to you. Because you would have to somehow determine that the cause of these random shutdowns of centrifuges was the most devious, most exquisite, most finely crafted, insidious, intelligent, brilliant computer worm in the history of computing, written by an astonishingly skilled team of people with almost unlimited resources and unlimited money, and written with only one purpose, to somehow sneak its way past every electronic countermeasure known to science, upload itself into your nuclear enrichment facilities that aren't connected to anything, and destroy your nation's nuclear program without leaving a trace. If anyone tries to tell you that they saw that coming, they is lying. It's a complete fluke that Stuxnet was ever found at all. If it weren't for a series of unlikely coincidences, it would still be out there doing its thing without anyone the wiser 12 years later. Stuxnet's flaw, ultimately, 
was that it was too good. It was everywhere. It had infected over 70% of the world's computers. And nobody knew about it. I guarantee your computer back then had Stuxnet on it. It possibly still does. And you don't even know. But it just so happened that one day, back in 2010, one of the many millions of millions of computers that Stuxnet infected, well, when you infect that many, a one in a billion shot becomes inevitable. One computer out of the millions that Stuxnet had infected, one of them, randomly, developed an allergy to Stuxnet. It was a complete freak occurrence. It bugged with the Stuxnet code in such a way that this one particular computer kept rebooting. It got stuck in a loop. And it just so happened that the person who owned this computer was a high-level businessman at a high-level company with a direct line to the upper management at a leading antivirus firm. This person, who essentially just called a friend looking for tech support, got this computer in front of the best in the world, and by sheer fluke, the most advanced virus in the world had finally done enough to attract notice. And even then, they'd found a virus that didn't appear to do anything. Here was what was obviously the most advanced computer virus ever designed, and it didn't appear to be doing anything. It wasn't active. It caused one person's computer to freeze, but that was a complete accident. And this is what made virus experts start to look into it in detail, because nothing this well-designed would exist just for the sake of existing. It had to do something. They just didn't know what it was. And the experts at Kaspersky, now that they knew what Stuxnet looked like, they went looking for it. They searched the globe for traces of Stuxnet, and they found that Stuxnet only ever activated in one place. It was dormant virtually everywhere in the world, except when it encountered nuclear enrichment centrifuges. And even then, It didn't infect every nuclear centrifuge it came across. Almost every country on Earth has industrial centrifuges, and they worked just fine. Stuxnet didn't touch them. No. Stuxnet only activated when it attached to nuclear centrifuges in Iran. That's it. It only ever activated in Iran. This whole virus the most complex virus ever designed, was targeted directly at the Iranian nuclear weapons program. Stuxnet was designed to do one thing and one thing only. It was designed to stop Iran from developing an atomic bomb. That's it. That's all it did. It didn't stop Iran from making weapons of mass destruction. It didn't stop Iraq from making atomic weapons. It didn't do anything except the specific combination of stopping Iran from enriching uranium. That's it. And it just so happened that the best way to get a virus into Iranian nuclear centrifuges just happened to be to infect every single computer on the planet so that by sheer weight of averages, the virus eventually got through. Oddly enough, you're not going to believe this, 
but Iranian nuclear centrifuges don't run Microsoft Windows, or Apple, or even Linux. The computers they have on these centrifuges, they're called gray boxes, they don't run any normal operating system, which makes it very hard to write viruses for them. And this, quick aside, this is the reason why Apple could claim in their marketing for so many years that it didn't have any viruses. It's because it wasn't worth the effort of writing viruses for Apple's. Apple didn't make up enough of the market for people to bother writing viruses for it. It's kind of like Canberra claiming to have Australia's lowest amount of shark attacks. It's true, but it's true because it's a completely inland. Apple didn't have viruses because back in the day when they were making that claim, nobody owned an Apple. Things have changed. So you can't write a virus for these Iranian machines specifically because they don't run Windows. But what does run Windows? The laptops of the engineers who go in there and do maintenance on the Iranian centrifuge machines. These laptops, they would eventually at some point be in contact with the centrifuge operating systems. And these laptops would at some point be in contact with at least one other machine on the planet which in turn would be in contact with lots of other machines, which at some point one of them would have been infected with the Stuxnet virus. Whoever wrote this thing created something that would infect the entire world to get it to nuclear facilities in Iran. And as I've discussed many times on this show, if there's anything I admire in this world, it's commitment to the bit. We still don't know who created Stuxnet. We probably never will. It's not the kind of thing you take credit for. Or at least it's not the kind of thing you take credit for for very long before it's the last thing that you ever take credit for. In 2012, the Washington Post, the New Yorker, and the Atlantic Monthly all claimed to have some level of leaked intelligence from the US government exposing something known as Operation Olympic Games. This was a combined United States and Israel joint operation that used cyber warfare to attack Iranian nuclear infrastructure. Conceived under the Bush Jr. and Netanyahu administrations and accelerated under Obama, but as you can imagine, all parties involved neither confirm nor deny the nature of these leaks. All we can say is that if you were to imagine the kind of virus that the CIA and Mossad would come up with, you'd get something that looked a lot like Stuxnet. But we'll probably never know for sure. And there you go. One of my personal favorite stories from history, and one that I've been really excited to tell. Everyone, close the program you're listening on, go out, and watch Hackers again. It's still one of the greatest popcorn movies of all time. Voodoo people, hack the planet! There's a new virus in the database. What's happening? It's replicating, eating up memory. Uh, what do I do? Type cookie, you idiot. I'll head him off at the pass. That was fun, wasn't it? I certainly had fun. And you know what? For five Australian dollary dues a month, you get that kind of thing on the reg. None of this wait-for-the-artist-to-find-his-muse thing like we get on the main show. This is a slick production. Once a month, bang, bonus show, and all for less than the cost of a beer. Really makes you think, huh? Alright, I'll leave it at that. Happy Valentine's Day. Later, voodoo peeps.